the retrograde approach, episode 23, supported by the ANZ SVS, peripheral arterial disease. Welcome to The Retrograde Approach. My name is Dr. Yogi Sansukumar, and it's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Dr. Sam Farah, the tibial hunter. The best episode of the series so far. Sam really gets to make use of that nickname, and uh, what a pleasure it is to have this opportunity to talk on the topic. Sam, how are you going? I will not dignify any of that dialogue with a response, Yogi. <laughs> off the top uh, can i just say um uh, apologies to our loyal listeners it's been a little bit of time between episodes but um we've uh, got a good series of uh recordings to come ahead and we're looking forward to sharing that with you uh in the weeks ahead you did, um you did have an exam in all fairness Yogi. i did have an exam but uh that's now come and gone and uh, in the midst of all of that, um, you both of us have been busy. We've been doing uh, a range of things which have uh, uh, kept us um, sort of involved in the education and teaching of some of these fellowship candidates. And um, I guess the second point for tonight is um, we just a shout out to those guys sitting their fellowship exams in the month of September. They're in between their written and clinical at the moment. And um, uh, we're just, yeah, sending you our best and wishing you all success in your upcoming uh, vibers. Another another barrier to recording an episode, Yogi, was that my toddler stole a uh, integral part of the recording setup. Oh, I mean that's that is worthy of a few weeks at least. I mean, uh, who knows? It's like where's Wally, right? You've got to go and find it, mate. It was it was touch and go there for a while, but uh, Henry, <laughs> you're in trouble. H banger. <laughs> Yeah, one of the many interns in the Farrah household. Um, but no, it's a, it's an absolute privilege to be back um, recording another episode of the Retrograde Approach. Um, now tonight um, we're going to go back to bread and butter vascular surgery, Sam, and have a little discussion about a topic that um, keeps us busy uh, in practice. Um, we look after. Uh, a whole range of patients with peripheral arterial disease. Uh, it is what our specialty is about. Um, if aneurysms are the sexy part of our practice, peripheral arterial disease is most definitely not the sexy part of our practice. I think it depends who you ask, Yogi. Like, um, you know, it is uh, these patients are complex and, uh, you know, when you, when you get a nice foot pulse at the end of a difficult case, it's always very re- rewarding, so... Speak, speak for yeah, yourself. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Maybe not, not, um, maybe not overtly attractive as a disease um, presentation, but definitely um, a yeah, lot of I satisfaction. See what, I see what you're saying. I'm now, now I'm on uh, your wavelength. And as you know, Sam, my favorite operation of all time is a fempop bypass graft. So um, this this really sings home to me. As much <laughs> as the tibial intervention is for you, you you've been waiting 23 episodes. To- <laughs> to drop that one. I'm not editing that out. That is staying in there most definitely. 
Um, so Sam, I guess um, where we can kick off is uh, just with a very bare basic introduction to what is atherosclerotic disease and what are some of the risk factors of atherosclerotic disease? Yogi, you give this talk to the medical students. So I think this is your wheel, <laughs> wheelhouse, mate. This is one of those things I read the night before the, the exam and um, like the uh, clotting cascade, committed to memory and then promptly forget about it the next day. It's, um, yeah, I guess it's the main underlying, underlying cause of um, cardiovascular disease. Uh, and broadly speaking, it incorporates the concept of atherosclerosis, which is the hardening and narrowing of arteries in vascular beds around the body. It leads to the variety of presentations that we see uh, in in the majority of vascular beds, and commonly uh, this may relate relate to the various spectrum of um, sort of ischemic heart presentations in the lower limb. It leads to the various presentations associated with um, stenotic occlusive disease of the lower limb. Uh, in the carotid territory, it leads to the, the various spectrum of presentations associated with cerebral vascular disease. Um, when we think about the risk factors for atherosclerosis, um, none of this should be of any surprise. Uh, it incorporates both non-modifiable and modifiable risk factors. The non-modifiable risk factors, which um, we would anticipate, include age, gender, ethnicity, and family history, and the modifiable risk factors, which incorporate smoking, obesity, hypertension, uh, lipid control, and glycemic control. You got to remember all these modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors also interplay with the patient's underlying uh, comorbidities and their uh, pre-existing conditions, such as diabetes, coronary artery disease, stroke, and transient ischemic events, or peripheral arterial disease. Um, and so, none none of that should be overtly surprising to our audience. Um, but um, Sam, I guess the fundamental principle uh, when it comes to atherosclerosis is understanding the cycle that we go through in our lifetime from the uh, pristine clean arteries that we are uh, gifted at birth um, to a lifetime of vice uh, and good food, uh, which leads to the subsequent uh, pathognomonic features of atherosclerosis. Um, you probably remember back to uh, your first few years of medical school learning about this in uh, histology and pathology, Sam. Um, uh, as you probably remember, the initial adaptive uh, intimal changes that occur to the vessel and the subsequent formation of xanthomas or the, the foam cells um, and those foam cells that then progress to pathological intimate thickening, which can then progress into the pathognomonic fibroatheroma, which is the um, symptomatic plaque presentation or the more indolent uh, fibrocalcific plaque which we see in the more chronic group that we look after. Does that sound familiar to you, Sam? There are some vague, uh, vague recollections of what's being discussed here, Yogi. But yes, no, it does sound, <laughs> it does sound very familiar to me. Sam, it's not the equivalent of the Krebs cycle, you know, where you, that's something that you remember immediately before an exam. Hey, we look after this all the time, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so Sam, um, What's when it comes to peripheral arterial disease, how may that present um, and what does that look like in terms of the disease presentation itself? Um, 
Well, obviously we have uh, a large group of patients who are asymptomatic and it's not uncommon to get a referral to the outpatient clinic for a patient who's been found to have um, some form of peripheral arterial disease that's sometimes quite often in investigation for pain in the leg. And as we know, there's multiple causes of uh, painful lower limbs, which includes neurogenic causes. And often in that setting, the patient will get a duplex study that shows that their posterior tubular artery is occluded for some reason, and they, c- they come to you with a full complement of other pulses and um, pain in the limb. And so there are a, you know, a group of patients who will have some form of peripheral arterial disease without symptoms, and most likely that's due to um, cl- either collateralization or just quite simply the uh, disease isn't significant enough. Um, then we have patients who claudicate, probably touched on that a bit, more later on and then we have chronic limb threatening ischemia or clti or cli as we sometimes cause it which is basically a significant peripheral arterial disease with rest pain tissue loss or ulceration um, and then we've got a couple of sort of more interesting syndromes so that's basically plaque that's embolizing down the lower limb sometimes that's in the leg itself or sometimes it's from higher ups uh, that might include a arch or thoracic or juxtarenal aneurysm, for example, and basically you have atheroembroli lodging in the most distal part of the circulation, which is often the toes, which sometimes actually causes patients a fair bit of grief and pain. And then finally have thrombosis in such where you have a critical stenosis and then there may be some form of plaque rupture um, or the stenosis sort of becomes so tight that perhaps the artery thromboses. Um, We see this in the leg and commonly this is a common cause of cardiac syndromes as well yeah and that's right so a broad group of patients um, and a broad type of presentations associated with peripheral arterial disease um, I guess it wouldn't be fair to um, you know discuss peripheral arterial disease without thinking a little bit about the epidemiology associated with peripheral arterial disease Um, it is an increasingly it is an increasingly common uh, condition worldwide. Um, and in the year 2010, it was thought to affect more than 200 million people globally. Uh, but within Australia, it's a major contributor to mortality and morbidity of patients uh, with atherosclerosis. Um, and in primary care, up to 10% of patients have some form of peripheral arterial disease. And that increases to, uh, to about 22% in patients aged over the age of 75. Um, peripheral arterial disease also increases the risk of cardiovascular and lower limb morbidity and mortality, uh, specifically a three to four fold increase in acute myocardial infarct and a 10 to 15 times percent increase um, in the risk of cardiovascular mortality when compared to patients without peripheral arterial disease. So here's a, um, here's a question for you, Yogi. When would you actually define that? And I, I don't know the answer to this, but this is just, you know, shower thoughts basically. But when, when would you actually define that someone's got or has peripheral arterial disease? Yeah, fascinating shower thought. Uh, normally, I'm just debating how hot or cold the, the water is, and I, I'm in there and out before you know it. Um, the, I think the simple answer to that is the demonstration um, of uh, atherosclerosis on um, 
on imaging with a congruent history that's in keeping with that. Um, it may not necessarily always be congruent, but the presence of atherosclerosis um, on imaging probably correlates with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess you could also argue that um, on clinical examination, a lack of pulses uh, or the associated features of chronic limb-threatening ischemia would also account for that as well. So I think it's the reflection of that spectrum of disease presentation. Yeah, okay. And then here's another interesting interesting one for you. When would you actually say that someone is a va- – because this term gets sort of thrown around a bit when we take referrals of patients, a vasculopath or an arteriopath. Yeah. Is, there, is there a threshold for that term, do you think? No. I, I think the, uh, the term vasculopath annoys me. Um, uh, I think – the reality is, unfortunately, they are probably correct. Um, if you've got evidence of peripheral arterial disease, you probably have other vascular beds that are involved, whether they are active and symptomatic or whether they're entirely silent and asymptomatic. But um, no, I don't think there's a particular threshold. I think it's a term that's bandied around. And arguably, um, if you have any within a vascular bed, you're going to be called a vasculopath. So, yeah, I mean, like, um, I don't don't know where the, uh, yeah, so obviously that term gets thrown around quite a bit, but I tend to agree that there's there's really kind of no threshold. Like, does someone come with a simple, you know, 50 to 75% SFA stenosis? Are they an arteriopath? Do they have peripheral vascular disease? Where do we draw the line? I think technically you could probably argue that, and I think you could say yes. Um, and I think the problem is just that this it is a systemic problem involving all blood vessels of the body. So yep. arguably uh, the term fits. Um, and you're right, they could use the term ar- arteriopath um, as an equivalent. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I... You know, when you write the next chapter or the next version of Rutherford, Sam, just um, maybe we could define it. Sounds good, Yogi. No, I know know your preference is the Oxford textbook, Sam, so it would have to wait a few years before they'd, um, you know, come out with a new version. But the fundamental problem that we face with peripheral arterial disease is that the natural history of... um, peripheral atherosclerotic disease or peripheral arterial disease is really very difficult to predict. Um, and Sam, you and I both know that uh, we look after a group of patients who present with chronic limb-threatening ischemia who have been entirely asymptomatic until such point that they have fallen over the threshold. Yep. Um, and then they're often very surprised when they go through the journey of not only intervention but sadly there's a fair number of patients that also end up in a limb loss situation yeah that's right i mean you could also sort of uh, draw a parallel with carotid disease asymptomatic patient patients that can be asymptomatic for a long time until they have an event so absolutely when it comes to peripheral arterial disease um over a five-year span um seven percent of patients who have asymptomatic peripheral arterial disease will go on to have some form of clinical deterioration and about one in five patients with intermittent claudication will go on to have a deterioration in their walking distance uh, or progress to clti again we see that every day in practice sam and in some shape or form um 
I guess there's nothing worse than when you've successfully discharged someone from your clinic because they've uh, managed to demonstrate a significant improvement in their walking distance and then to represent with some form of ulceration, infection or tissue loss and yep. yeah, your heart sinks. That's right. There are also a group of patients who I think have very active vascular disease. So they may have a bypass or you may have performed a bypass, but they're usually like a younger patient who may have a smoking history. And I feel like in those patients, everything, all the uh, you know pro-atherosclerotic inflammatory things are switched on to the max. And I think they're an interesting group of patients because they have a very high fail rate. Um, yeah. Not just on the side you've treated, but things can progress quite quickly in other places, like the other leg can go, for instance. So um, although you sort of quoted some um, relatively modest figures there, there are, there are a group of patients who, who, who kind of have the switch turned on and just keep, um, they burn out very quickly. Yeah, and... Uh, it you know we we believe we have a good understanding of the interplay versus the various inflammatory mediators that are involved in atherosclerosis. Mm. Um, I think there are various signaling pathways which science has been able to elicit, but the reality is that you're right. I think some people have very aggressive atherosclerotic disease, and the timing of which they seem to present often occur concurrently, which adds to the extra dilemma of what we have, what you're dealing with, mm. uh, which is also then complicated. By- but these patients are normally not very well. That's right. And some of them are unfortunately very young. Yeah, I think I think the being young has something to do with it. Like um I think they probably have more um responsive um cellular pathways that um um may, you know, drive disease progression than perhaps an older patient. Um yeah, I mean I think um, as your, uh, as, uh, yeah, it's, it's often very difficult to explain to that group of patients. And uh, Sam, in your role as the tibial hunter, it almost just gets you really so sort of fired up when you're when you're when you're looking after them. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you about an interesting patient. I had um, younger patient Claudicant, um SFA stent, short stent, like 10, 10 centimeters. That's short for me. Um, <laughs> his SFA stent occluded and he was just claudicating and um, his, actually his claudication was more or less fairly non-lifestyle limiting and I sort of said look now the stent has failed and your leg is okay and you're not limited that's actually a relatively safe place to be yeah. because I know that it's unlikely that you know things are going to progress beyond that and you know, the thing that we worry about in vascular is what happens when the treatment fails. Oh, yeah. So then I sent him off just for some exercise ABI studies um, just so I'd have some documentation about his pressures for the next visit. And when he came back to see me the next time, the whole SFA had occluded, not just a stent, um, mm. which I thought was um, interesting. And he's kind of that younger patient with very active disease and he's got this sort of shaggy infrarenal aorta, which is just full of plaque. Um so um, I thought that was interesting. The stent failed, but then later the whole SFA occluded. Um, and so it was kind of that one where, you know, you sort of say, you know, this rate of progression over some years, but he, he actually progressed relatively quickly. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, Sam, you touched on a number of very important issues, but the key thing that as vascular surgeons we harp on a lot about is the longevity of anything that we do for peripheral arterial disease. And sadly, as we will touch on later in this episode, um, a lot of what we do, unfortunately, doesn't have great longevity and um, it requires a constant process of balance to keep it running. Mm. Um, so if we could just uh, just briefly touch on um, the symptoms and signs that we might appreciate in peripheral arterial disease. You, yep. you mentioned this earlier, Sam, with uh, people with asymptomatic peripheral arterial disease, they may have just the risk factors for peripheral arterial disease, but um, clinically may have reduced or absent pulses, but have no other clinical features to suggest that they've got peripheral arterial disease. Yep. Um, you talked about the symptomatic group as well. And so the most common presentation that we see is intermittent claudication. Um, and in that group of patients also, classically, they may also have reduced or absent pulses and may not have the full gamut of arterial insufficiency clinical findings. We then go on to the group with cro uh, chronic limb-threatening ischemia or critical limb-threatening ischemia, which incorporates ischemic rest pain, tissue loss, and ulceration. And in this group of patients, you see the whole gamut of arterial insufficiency, uh, reduced or absent peripheral pulses, the trophic changes such as hair loss, muscle wasting, or clawed toes, uh, evidence of ulceration, gangrene, and necrosis that you might encounter in this uh, much more extreme end of the spectrum. So, Sam, if um, it, it'd be worthwhile then to just progress to the process of taking a history from this patient with peripheral arterial disease. So... Say you're in clinic and you're seeing a patient with peripheral arterial disease. Um, the GPs referred them on because they've done an ultrasound that's demonstrated uh, segmental tibial occlusions um, and for your input and management. How would you uh, start by taking your history? What sort of questions would you like to ask the patient? Um, so the first sort of thing to, uh, to uh, look at is why the patient's there. Um, are they presenting with a history of pain or are they presenting with um, uh, tissue loss, essentially? Um, if they're presenting with tissue loss, so basically ulceration of the foot or any other part of the leg can be considered um, with um, uh, some documentation of peripheral arterial disease. Um, uh, you know, After we take the history and examine the patient, we're probably heading down a route of intervention for that patient. Um, if the patient's presenting with a question mark about pain in the limb, i.e. claudication in particular. Um, we're, we're kind of looking for a fairly typical claudication history, i.e. pain brought on by exercise and relieved by rest. In a typical uh, distribution, which one of us would expect um, for a person with PAD, i.e. calf, uh, thigh or buttock. And obviously the, those sort of correspond with an area of um, disease corresponding, such as in the calf, tends to be SFA popliteal. In the thigh, you're looking at iliac disease. In the buttock, um, iliac and internal iliac disease. And they tend to give a fairly, you know, standard history, um, aching, cramping, tightness in the leg. Again, it's brought on by walking a particular distance. They stop walking and the pain's um, relieved after a period of time. And that's where most of the non-vascular um, causes are kind of excluded. So common ones are patients with 
painful diabetic neuropathy, pain tingling in the foot. Um, they may have altered sensation um, or there's a degree of um, shooting pain from the buttock or back if it's um, a lumbar radiculopathy or sciatica type pain. And then every now and then you get a patient who comes to you with you know perhaps even an element of foot drop or some other motor dysfunction or wasting um, in the setting of peripheral arterial disease. I think, again, those are usually almost always neurogenic in the outpatient setting. Um, I think if you get to that stage with um, peripheral arterial disease, you know, you've had basically an ischemic leg and usually you've ended up in hospital. So that's not a typical presentation, I'd say. Um, uh, most patients will have some exacerbation of the symptoms on an incline or sometimes on stairs. Um, and then obviously with um, more advanced disease, you know, we get to the rest pain stage. So in particular, we're asking about pain in the foot at night that's relieved with rest. And as our uh, good colleague, Dr. Rog, likes to always inquire, particularly if the patient's elderly and male, how many times do they get up at night anyway? I.e. if the patient's getting up eight times at night, they're probably to, to urinate. Um, they're probably not going to be sleep long enough to um, uh, experience um, true uh, rest pain. Um, does that cover most things, Yogi? It does. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I, I re- reciprocate the shout out to Dr. Og. Um, I, like you, or, or as um, had the privilege of being in his clinic, um, as a junior registrar. And, um, one of the main things that I feel I got out of that was an appreciation for boats, but also, um, an appreciation for what rest pain actually means. And but rest pain is a very vascular specific term. Um, as Dr. Og, uh, reminded me on numerous occasions, uh, often, unfortunately, the, uh, rest pain is confused with nocturnal pain syndromes and there are multiple causes for why someone might have pain um, in the leg but also the distribution not being in keeping with the uh, mid to distal forefoot which improves with dependency now um, the other thing i thought would be worthwhile also just touch that history is that concept of claudication distance sam and how do you ask about claudication distance when you talk to a patient um, I do generally just ask how far they think they can walk, but I think that's a very hard um, uh, thing to kind of elicit. Uh, so usually what I try and do is um, get a sense of where the patient has actually parked their car, if they've driven there the day, and, and generally you have a rough idea how far it is from the car park to the uh, clinic, and then that way you can kind of get a gauge of how many times they've had to stop. Um, g- generally, if they can get from the car park to clinic, They've walked at least 500 metres. So, um, you know, that's, uh, you know, if most of our patients can walk 500 metres, that's not a, not a bad start. But, uh, yeah, I'll try and um, have something a bit um, concrete in terms of their walking distance. And then, then if there's any kind of conjecture, I think the fallback is just to put them on a treadmill and get them to walk and have, them, have the distance objectively measured. Yeah, I think um, we'll talk about that. And I think a treadmill is a great way of discerning between uh, true arterial claudication and other types of claudication. But another Mariog strategy uh, was to whip out Google Maps and ask the patient about their local neighbourhood and map out how far they're able to walk. 
Um, that's usually a very good and accurate presentation of distance covered. That's good. I haven't used that one before, but I'll, uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll use it next clinic. Um, and rem- uh, just a quick um, note that, you know, the complete history, of course, incorporates eliciting a history of their medical, past medical and surgical history, medications, social history, family history, uh, allergies, uh, which all incorporates the complete process in clinic. Um, then I guess the, the next step before we move on, Sam, is actually the clinical examination that you're performing. So you've taken this incredible history from the patient. You're able to nut out um, their sort of profiterial disease history. What's your process of examination for this patient? I knew you were going to get to this point, Yogi. It's bringing back your viva. <laughs> um, generally, just start off with a general inspection of the patient, getting a rough idea if they're suitable for, um, you know, are they frail, are they uh, well, generally medically, um, getting an idea of their body habitus, if so I'm thinking of doing an angiogram, but then we're getting to the pulse pulses pretty quickly. Before you do that, you're going to look for their footwear, their pro- they got prosthetics, got a walking aid, sounds wear good. on their shoes. Sounds good. I feel like, Yogi, this is your wheelhouse and you just better take over from here. <laughs> it's all you, Sam. All right, so we're on. So we've got the patient on the bed. Um, you've done your cardiovascular examination because you're going to listen to their carotid, auscultate their chest. Um, you're going to have a feel of belly and then you're onto the legs. Yeah, that's right. And you're feeling for pulses. You're feeling, um, you know, the quality of the pulse. How strong is it? Is it, you know, a thrill, um, uh, palpable? You could, especially if the patient suspects having common femoral disease, you quite often, quite often feel that the common femoral's quite firm, hard, rocky as well. Then you're checking popliteal and pedal pulses, uh, looking at the color of the feet. You're looking for all those trophic changes uh, you mentioned earlier. Um, looking at the quality of the nails, uh, is the skin dry, fissured and cracked, um, making sure you inspect the foot completely, so in between the toes, arches, heels, ankles, Achilles, um, and making making sure obviously you're exposing the patient appropriately to get a good look at uh, everything. Um, even if you're exa- even if you're seeing a patient for claudication, every you'd be surprised that actually sometimes. You're seeing someone who claudicates, but they've actually got a, a wound on their foot as well, which actually changes the game considerably. Um, so you're doing all of that. Um, uh, you've checked the pulses. You've looked at the feet. you looked at the footwear. I think most of us would then consider doing Berger's test. So Yeah, shout out Leo Berger. Leo, Leo Berger. Um, for, the, for those who want to know, Austrian-American physician. Pronounce, how is it pronounced? Don't know, Berger. Someone pronounced it Berger to me once, which is French pronunciation, which I think is actually incorrect. <laughs> Especially if he lived in New York for his adult life, people people would have called it <laughs> Berger. Imagine is um in that it'd be early Australian colonial history if he was out here in Australia. It'd be <laughs> g'day Berger. Berger. So um, most of us are, do, are doing burger sign to complete the uh, examination. Yeah. 
And um, I guess it also gives you a great opportunity to also um, look at your pseudocortication group, especially for those um, who then um, also use it as a straight leg raise test as well. So, um, Sam, I guess just before we move on, one of the um, – there are classification sy systems for chronic peripheral arterial disease. Um, both the Fontaine and Rutherford classification. I have to say, in practice, I don't routinely document this in my notes. I find the actual communication of information should reflect the signs that have been elicited um, and the yeah. symptoms that have been described. Um, but uh, I, I feel it predominantly has a research application because it allows you to understand the groups of patients that are being looked at in a in a study. But yeah. um, what are your thoughts on the classification systems for chronic peripheral arterial disease? Yeah, so there's, uh, look, there's basically two, Rutherford and Fontaine. I think the shortcoming with the Rutherford one is it um, gets superseded by the Rutherford classification for acute limb ischemia, and then people get a bit confused, I suppose, about where it sits. So you kind of, I think most of us would use Rutherford acute limb ischemia classification rather readily. Um, but I think in day-to-day -day language, we tend to just define what symptom or problem the patient has, whether that be tissue loss or rest pain. So, yeah, uh, yeah the Rutherford classification, basically zero to six from asymptomatic to major tissue loss. And then the Fontaine classifications, one to four. Um, I tend to think it's a bit neater, like I'm not really quite sure the difference between Rutherford five and six, which is minor tissue loss and major tissue loss. And then... Um, the Fontaine one to four asymptomatic intermittent claudication, rest pain, or tissue loss. Yeah, um, I think whatever it is, the language that you use needs to be understood by the person you're speaking to. So, uh, given that it's not necessarily routine in practice to a lot of our colleagues who are not in the field, it just seems, um, it, it just to me seems rather superfluous to actually use that in that group of patients. However, if you're talking to Sam Farrah, the tibial hunter, you might want to describe things as Fontaine and Rutherford classification. And there's probably some overlap with uh, Wi-Fi as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, another another useful classification system, especially in our groups of patients that have yep. diabetic foot presentations. Um, so... Now we're on to the juicier part of the topic, investigations for peripheral arterial disease. Um, uh, I think often I remind the medical students that before you commit to ordering a test um, and once you've completed your clinical examination, uh, this would incorporate an ankle brachial index um, and this is a test that can be easily performed using a blood pressure cuff and a handheld Doppler um, as it gives you a, a representation, though with some potential risk of error in terms of the degree of arterial insufficiency. Um, sometimes the practice also incorporates the use of toe pressures, um, though I've got to say I don't routinely use that for just stock standard peripheral arterial disease. I'd use it for patients with some evidence of ulceration or tissue loss, um, especially in the groups of patients with end-stage renal failure or diabetes, Sam. Would that be fair? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, toe pressure is an interesting one. I think it's very useful. Um, I think there's a lot of variation how the test is performed. And I think um, there's probably no gold standard um, 
description of how to do a toe pressure, which I think is a limitation. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, but I think it does give you some useful information when the test is done reliably. Yeah, and quick shout out to our colleague Anastasia, who, when she was a registrar, wrote a paper looking at the utility of second toe toe pressures. Um, also in a group of patients at CLTI. Um, so those are probably the bedside investigations that can be easily performed. But um, what about if you had to go on and then organise an investigation, Sam? What's your what's your workhorse investigation of choice? Have to be the old arterial duplex. Yeah, and 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 it follows that a lot of vascular surgeons um, work and participate within vascular labs because of the interpretation of the data that's collected, both in terms of morphological information but hemodynamic information that you get out of the process. Um, but the follow-on from that is the duplex. Um, there are both limitations to uh, the duplex in terms of being able to give you a representation of um, plaque, morphology, uh, extent, location, proximal disease, and then operative planning. Um, and so other investigations can be organised, Sam, if you wanted to get a bit more information as you're planning for that um, intervention for the patient. Yeah, so I think probably a CT angiogram is one we rely quite heavily on. Um, I will almost always, without exception, organise a CT angiogram if I'm planning iliac intervention um, and that's because I like to look at the uh, calcification of the vessel uh, extent of disease and vessel diameter for stent planting and to be honest I, I quite frequently would um, consider organising a CT angiogram if I'm planning a f- your favourite operation Yogi Fempop bypass I do like to look at the uh, calcification in the vessels and uh, what needs to be in data rectomized and I think the CTA is very helpful with that yeah, uh, I think um, the CTA uh, uh, CTAs are probably the uh, the second um, sort of most commonly organised investigation by most vascular surgeons. Some units use MRA. Um, however, I've got to say that's a very unit specific investigation. Um, in the majority of Australasia, um, it's not easily available in the public health system with MRIs um, being utilised for the myriad of other potential pathological processes that require an MRI much more urgently than lower limb atherosclerotic disease. Um, but um, there are some challenges, though, with CTA, and particularly when you're trying to elicit um, distal runoff. Sometimes the representation of flow can be challenging. Um, there can also be different in actually getting a good appreciation of calcific disease and sometimes CT angiograms can overcall that. Um, and so sometimes having two forms of investigations like a duplex gives you a better representation, especially for uh, the hemodynamics below the knee, Sam. Um, not sure if you agree with those comments, but um, those would be my own personal thoughts on that. Yeah, I think it's all correct. And, I mean, as you said, it's hard to get, but... Um... If there's any question about the runoff MRA or and uh, time-resolved MR is actually really, really, really good for that. Um, but, yeah, the problem is it's very hard to um, find a lab with the expertise or a, a department with the expertise to do it. Um, yep. But, 
you know, you and I used to work in Royal Brisbane and uh, they're quite good at it. And it's, yeah, very useful investigation when you need that information. Yeah. And, and I think the other thing is as vascular surgeons, we're probably very comfortable looking, we're very comfortable looking at an arterial duplex. We're incredibly comfortable looking at a CT angiogram. I think the interpretation of an MRA whilst can be akin to a CTA sometimes can be technically challenging, especially when you're looking at time of flight representations um, and just require an extra degree of specialized input from the radiologist to sort of guide that process. Um, other investigation, Sam, that you mentioned was the treadmill test um, and its role in sort of discerning between arterial presentations and uh, pseudoclaudication presentations. Um, typically, it's a very standardized pro, uh, protocol uh, for a set period of time at a particular inclination um, whereby the patient is stressed, I guess, to get at least 250 meters of uh, movement to try and see if it uh, results in a, a drop in blood pressure, um, which is recorded pre and post uh, with a 20% drop in the measured blood pressure considered to be uh, consistent with arterial presentations. And in the groups of patients that we do encounter uh, in practice, often they can have multiple reasons for why they have lower limb symptoms and being able to discern between true claudication and these neurogenic causes is very helpful. Yep. So um, Sam, a favorite, or we'll move on to management, but a favorite um, term in vascular surgery is this concept of best medical therapy. Mm. So what does best medical therapy for you uh, look like in this patient, in this patient cohort? Yeah. So we uh, obviously uh, statins are the uh, workhorse of, best medical therapy, uh, do you have a particular dose and um, poison of choice, Yogi, when you prescribe a statin? Yeah, I get really excited about the pleiotrophic effects of statins. So um, when it comes down to it, um, I, I'm i pretty stock standard. I go to uh, Lipitor or Tovastatin and probably start at 40. Um, there are some nuances to that, and I guess yeah, – um, you've there are there are in some patients have um difficulty with tolerance of yep. statin and so you may need to look at alternate anti-lipid agents that may also be need to be considered for that groups of patients involved yeah don't What's, you love the pleiotrophic effect of statin sam well it's, yeah it's interesting because um as the dose goes up so if you go to 80 apparently the uh those uh, effects improve, but actually the side effect profile is the same. However, I always feel ner <laughs> nervous starting at 80. Yeah. So I always start at 40. Yes. But uh, apparently yep. that's maybe not the right thing to do. Um, so uh, obviously with that, we, we like some form of antiplatelet, so aspirin, and that's also for secondary prevention. Uh, yeah, uh, just just a brief comment there uh, mm. about aspirin. Um uh, in more recent times, there's been controversy about the role of aspirin in primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. In fact, it's not in the red book for GPs anymore. Um, and interestingly, we see a whole bunch of patients that do come to the outpatient service that aren't on aspirin. And so just a reminder to 
uh, registrars, especially in clinic, to really have a good look through patients' medications list, especially given that they're not always routinely prescribed, given that there's been a growing evidence of the potential harm caused by aspirin for primary prevention. Right, I didn't know it actually uh, got removed. That's interesting. Yeah, so we I had a look at this quite recently because I was surprised um, by a group of patients that I'd seen in the outpatient setting that weren't commenced on aspirin, and the, there there is no recommendation in the in the red book for GPs to prescribe aspirin for peripheral arterial disease. There you go. Mm. Uh, I mean, smoke. Uh, yeah, interesting. So smoking cessation. Um, yeah, I really check the blood pressure, but good blood pressure management is very important. Uh, we're ensuring that the patient's diabetic uh, management is optimised. Um, there are some uh, pharmacotherapy um, options for claudication. Um, I think in reality they very rarely get used in Australia. Um, the level of evidence is quite low. I don't believe they're on the PBS, so they're private scripts, so they can be quite costly. And I'm not really sure they work all that well. And I think... Um, in all fairness, hand on heart, you couldn't really assure the patient by taking any of that stuff that they're actually going to notice any improvement. I know you would have known this for your fellowship exam, but what's mm. the mechanism of action of these drugs? Um, I presume they're vasodilatory in some capacity, but you're going yeah. to tell me the, uh, the actual answer. Aren't they phosphodiesterase inhibitors? Oh, they are too. You remember that, hey? Yeah, I do. It's, it's it's tweaking something in the uh, in the brain. I've just been thinking about golf for the last two years. So. <laughs> it's very rarely on a golf course you'd need to talk about phosphodiesterase inhibitors. Yeah, to, to be honest, any time I get interrupted by work at uh, on the golf course, it's it's usually downhill from there. <laughs> Um, and then exercise rehabilitation, Sam, um, yep. how does that look? What does that incorporate and, um, how important is that? Well, um, I'm trying, you're going to tell me the name of the study from Edinburgh walking study. Yep. So obviously, um, we know that's very, uh, effective, uh, way to treat people's claudication. They do improve. Um, and basically what you're trying to do is encourage the patient to walk to encourage collateralization and eventual improvement in their walking distance. I generally, I think the cutoff is 30 minutes five times a week as a formal definition, which I do explain to patients. But what I tell them to do is generally just go for a walk as far as you can go and get a rough idea about which house you get to around the block. And then your goal is just to get past that house the next day and so on and so on. And so that way they've at least got some target and they're working towards a particular goal rather than just kind of um, being a little less directed in their exercise program. Then if you really want to get technical, you can have a patient fill out a diary. Mm. Um, but, um, um, you know, to be honest, if a patient's that committed to, to doing all those things, you know, they, they're generally people we potentially offer intervention for anyway so is that, I, I guess it's becoming a smaller and smaller group of patients that are maybe doing that um and i think maybe there are some limitations overseas in patients who can get treatment for claudication they have to fail an exercise rehab program first so perhaps that's why it's a bit more popular overseas than it is here 
Yep. And then finally, the last component of best medical therapy is the friend of the vascular surgeon, the podiatrist. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, a lot of care and support for a lot of our patients out in the community and without them um, putting in their time and effort actually makes our, our life uh, much more difficult. So um, a huge shout out and appreciation to our podiatrists that are involved in looking after our patient group. Yep. Um, over the last few years, definitely since you and I have come through training, Sam, one of the big changes in peripheral disease management has been the role of anticoagulation. Um, in particular, two large studies that have come, both the COMPASS trial and the Voyager trial. And specifically, it's been it's looked at the role of the addition of um, anticoagulation and specifically Zerolta at a lower dose incorporation with antiplatelet therapy. Um, so specifically, the COMPASS trial, which did demonstrate that rivaroxaban or Zerolta at 2.5 BD with aspirin had better cardiovascular outcomes than aspirin alone, but was associated with more major bleeding, mm-hmm. so probably of no surprise. Yep. And then, of course, the um, Voyager trial, which looked at patients with peripheral disease who had undergone low extremity revascularization, um, rivaroxaban 2.5 milligrams BD together with aspirin was associated with a significantly lower incidence of the composite outcome of acute limb ischemia, major amputation for vascular causes, myocardial infarct, stroke or death from cardiovascular causes than aspirin alone. And perhaps that seems rather intuitive when you think about the potential role that anticoagulation may play. I guess the follow-up question to you, Sam, is have you seen that um, being incorporated into your practice um, or your colleagues' practice um, in Melbourne? Um, I actually just, uh, recently put my first patient on this low dose rivaroxaban, uh, protocol. And that was basically a young patient who, um, has many years to go and has already had uh, fairly extensive vascular intervention. I want to try and maximize the longevity of everything. Um, the kind of rate limiting step. I suppose, was that this low-dose rivaroxaban, I think, only came on the market in Australia early this year or maybe late last year, so it hasn't been uh, commonly available yet. But I think probably there's going to be more and more use of this. And I think kind of with that, as we've seen with people on normal-dose rivaroxaban, obviously the bleeding risk is a concern, but a lot of these patients turn up with acute surgical emergencies who seem to somehow get through their um, operations just fine. So I think um, I think they tend to be becoming a bit safer for the patients, but obviously, you know, there are a group of patients who do have major bleeding complications still. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And Sam, I'm much the same. I recently started a, a younger patient who had had a fem uh, distal bypass on Zeralta, and like you, I, I took the point that um, the real challenge here was the longevity of the repair that we'd performed, um, and I think that's the real challenge of our specialty that is that we are unable to yep. um, necessarily predict the potential deterioration of whatever intervention we perform. While surveillance is helpful, as we know, things do creep up. 
and constantly we're playing catch up with these groups of patients. So this feels slightly proactive. However, I also counsel these patients quite significantly about the potential issues with bleeding um, and tell them to avoid contact sports, though I guess a lot of them are going to be running around on the rugby field. I'm not sure. Is it pretty aggressive on the golf course? Can be. Can be. Yeah, especially if it's a good game. I did get copped in the hand by a uh, golf ball last weekend, so that wasn't fun. But um, uh, interest, uh, cost has been a barrier for this uh, medication, so I'm actually just looking it up now. Per month, it's about $42 yeah. for patients. Yeah. yeah. To me, it reminds me of the challenges when you and I were junior registrars and we wanted to start people on Capitagrill until the... Um, uh, until the generic versions of Capitagrill became available. It was mm. just a, I'm sure you remember as well as I do, that we were often trying to find cardiovascular indications Yeah. Um, because it was just a, it was such a challenge to, to get patients to be compliant because of cost. And this is another situation where we're facing an uphill battle at the moment. Yep. And the PBS listing for the two and a half milligrams uh, BD of Zeralta is quite tight, includes not only having peripheral arterial indications, but also an underlying history of coronary artery disease from what I recall. So the streamline authority is chronic stable atherosclerotic disease. So it's a pretty wide net. So, Okay. Um, moving on, Sam. So when we think about what sort of patients with peripheral arterial disease that we provide some form of intervention to mm. uh, what are sort of the sort of criteria that we would consider before we embark on intervention? I think most of us would use lifestyle limitation as the main one. So does this actually um, affect the patient's quality of life? A lot of patients can or do claudicate, but they're not bothered by the symptoms, particularly if they're getting sort of uh, older and uh, getting later in life, they just say, look, I walk 400 metres, I get a bit of pain, I stop, goes, I'm fine. Um, obviously, as the walking distance becomes shorter, patients are more disabled and they tend to want us to do something um, a bit uh, with a bit more enthusiasm. Um, as we kind of alluded to earlier, um, in some uh, jurisdictions that require patients to have trialled an exercise rehab program first, I think technically that's what we should be doing. I don't know how commonly we're doing that in practice these days. Um, I, I, I generally prefer the patients to have stopped smoking. Um, and then there's some question about people who are still smoking and whether if, you know you should do anything if they're having trouble with work or social uh, commitments, etc. And then I think, you know, CLTI, patient has wrist pain, tissue loss or ulcers, I, I think almost... Um, universally unless the patient was very frail and they're going to be palliated uh, we'd all be offering them some form of treatment the reason we have this criteria for operative intervention is that there's only ever growing evidence that uh, any form of operative intervention for claudicants it results in a high rate of limb loss and arguably the justification for intervention really has to be at a point where um as you suggested, there are social implications as a result of their inability to either participate in their um, in their employment or to actually participate in society, but also really because the consequences of the intervention can lead 
to them losing their leg, which would be a catastrophic outcome for a patient who just has uh, a claudication distance that is more than a hundred meters. Yeah, here's a here's a <coughs> complicated question. Uh, guy who is uh, smoking can't work claudicates. Yeah, I, I think that that patient is an extremely difficult patient to look after because it you spend mo- most of your time in counselling for this patient, trying to educate them on the potential issues, not only about the patency of your intervention, but also the fact that smoking reduces their long-term patency anyway. And so you're sort of stuck between a rock and a rock. And it's one of those consults where 20 minutes after you've started, you still start, you're going back to the beginning because they, uh, they start off with and end with, but doctor, what are you going to do for me? Yeah. So you wouldn't do it. Uh, uh, Look, I, in that group of patients, they'd have to exhaust an enormous number of interventions and time before I commit to it because my biggest fear with any form of intervention is the longevity of which I provide them. And arguably, the longer I can put them off, the better it is. So in that group of patients, I try for as long as I can to avoid it. Yeah, fair enough. Do you feel differently? No, no, uh, I, I I wouldn't offer them intervention. I mean, I think there's nothing worse than performing an intervention. The patient returns back to your clinic, but they're worse off than where they began. Yeah, I mean, it does happen, unfortunately. And so you're then having to counsel them about the fact that you're going to now reserve further intervention until they have critical or chronic limb-threatening ischemia, which is an even harder conversation to have. Mm. Mm. So... Uh, with that agreement from the tibial hunter, um, it'd be worthwhile then talking about the various treatment strategies that are available for peripheral arterial disease. Um, these incorporate open endovascular interventions as well as hybrid interventions. Sam, just broad strokes here, but what are some of the open revascularization options for peripheral arterial disease? Basically, uh, open bypass surgery, so... Aorta by fem, either fem, um, fem pops, femoral endarterectomies. Um, obviously, um, I, I generally won't perform fem tibials for claudication uh, for a number of reasons. One, I don't think it generally works because the blood supply from the soleus comes from the popliteal. So I don't think they'll really get much benefit from that. Um, similarly, um, I have a general rule that I wouldn't perform any extra anatomical bypass for claudication. So that includes fem-fem or uh, axillo-bifemoral bypass. Yeah, and I guess any form of open intervention also runs the risk of not only the intrinsic issues of early and late failure, but the various complications that can occur with um, the incisions that you make, the ability of healing and the potential... Uh, injury that's associated with the dissection involved, particularly lymphatic uh, dysfunction, um, as well as the ability for wind healing as well. Yep. Endovascular intervention has definitely been the revolution in our practice. Um, and I think this is the uh, imminent challenge for us as vascular surgeons is because um, endovascular interventions are possibly seen as 
less involved and uh, less of an impact on the overall hemodynamics of a patient. Um, and with the ever-growing older patient group cohort that we look after, we almost feel obliged to try and embark on some form of endovascular intervention. But in the current armament of a vascular surgeon, what does that actually entail, Sam? Um, uh, angioplasty, drug-eluting angioplasty, stenting, atherectomy. Yeah, um, and there are various forms of debulking techniques. Um, so um, lipotripsy, which seems to also have a fat in and out, uh, but atherectomy has definitely come back with a vengeance, um, especially in the last few years where we've gone through a period of uh, concern with um, uh, drug-eluting technologies. And so uh, it was felt that this was a potential adjunct in that era and has now... Uh, continue to evolve in practice um, from the perspective of debulking uh, prior to any form of um, balloon angioplasty as a means of avoiding stinting in these patients. Do you uh, perform atherectomy yourself? Uh, Sam, and I, I have to say in my consultant life too, so far, I have not. Okay. Um. Do you do you see a particular role of atherectomy in your practice? Yeah, I, to be honest, I quite like it. Um, I think um, for the popliteal, it's really good. Obviously, yep. you, you really have, you can avoid putting stents in. Yeah. Uh, in that area, which I think is a win. Um, yeah. It's really good for the calcific lesions. So, yeah. You know, traditionally, where you might balloon, the balloon might rupture or. You might balloon and the artery might dissect. I think yep. it's, it's good in those situations. Although it's off IFU, I found it was actually really good for instance stenosis. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's it's good for long lesions because um, long occlusive lesions because there's always an issue about whether you're in the lumen or subinternally and how yeah. you can direct the uh, cutting blade if you're using directional atherectomy. But also, I mean, it is quite hard to debulk everything and um, there's a risk of embolizing as well. So it, yeah. it it does get a bit problematic when you get, maybe we should have an episode on atherectomy one day, Yogi, but it does get a bit problematic as well once you get close to the tibial trifurcation as well. Yeah. Um, especially if you're someone who puts a filter in. Yeah, and I, I think the other group of patients are those with common femoral disease. Sam, have you used that for it? For that indication? Uh, a couple of times. It's basically um, people who aren't fit for surgery, really. Mm. You're considering that. It's really also good for that SFA stenosis right at the ostium, where if you mm-hmm. wanted to put a stent in, you'd actually end up sitting proud. So um, I've had a, some good success with that as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the I think over the next few years, the um, accuracy, with which you're able to atherectomize a lesion will only continue to improve the challenges with coming up and over, still pose a challenge with the devices, especially the um, uh, uh, the rotational atherectomy. Uh, I think it poses still a challenge in terms of being able to seat the atherectomy blades on the lesion that you're trying to target. Um, but, um it's one of the many parts of the armamentarium of the vascular surgeon. But then finally, of course, Sam, 
um, hybrid operative interventions, which I think has really been the nuts and bolts of where we practice um, the idea that um, we work within a hybrid operating environment and can utilize both open and endovascular techniques to really provide um, minimally invasive invest in, in interventions for remote disease. And I think that's really been the sort of it's become the standard of care uh, in vascular surgical practice. In in most most institutions, Yogi. Yeah, in most institutions, and I think um, in centres that don't, um, surgeons have become very adept at being, um, you know, being able to adopt a C arm in the operating theatre. I think there are, I think the one of the many challenges of the introduction of radiological procedures into the operating environment is making sure the nurses in theatre are also as fluent as the surgeon in being able to perform both open and endovascular interventions. And it's entirely up to us as vascular surgeons to bring our staff along on that journey and educate them as we do that. Um, Sam, on a final note, um, I just want to reiterate the fact that whatever we do for peripheral arterial disease, uh, the biggest challenge that we all face is the patency of the intervention that we undertake. And often we try and reserve intervention for these groups of patients until we absolutely need to, because we know that there are many challenges to their long-term patency. Um, and there's nothing worse than intervening on someone and having to then explain to them either that the intervention has failed or their symptoms have not improved but sadly also the potential deterioration of their symptoms and um, and the potential for limb loss. So um, I think peripheral arterial disease is a tale of caution. Um, I think it's the skill of the vascular surgeon to be able to identify the patients who actually deserve intervention. Um, and you've got to say that hopefully over five years of training, we see enough and we're adept enough to be able to discern that. Um, so with that, um, Thank you very much, Sam, Tibial Hunter, on tackling this Thanks, topic. Um, and hopefully for our listening audience, that was an enjoyable journey through a topic which you commonly encounter in the vascular theatre environment. Thanks, Yogi. See you soon. See you soon.